We continue in worship this evening by turning in our copies of God's Word to Psalms 45. Uh, Psalm 45. We commence our reading there at the sixth verse. Psalm 45, and starting at verse 6. Hear once again the word of our God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. As far the reading of God's word, and indeed may, may he bless it to us this evening. We come in Psalm 45, as we come to the 10th verse, to a major transition in the psalm. Really, from the 1st to the ninth verse, our focus has been upon the king enthroned. But now the attention has changed entirely. In fact, even the address has changed. You remember, after the first verse, the psalmist is addressing all of his comments to the king, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in verse 10, not only does his subject, but so does the one whom he addresses change. Now he addresses the queen that he mentioned in verse 9. In the first nine verses, you have a picture of Christ enthroned. Really, from the tenth verse to the end, we now get a picture of the church as she's beautified. And so how then does this new section begin? It begins, strikingly, with a call. The call there is in the tenth verse. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Three separate statements. The entailment from all being very simple. Consider and consider closely. And what is she to consider? Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Now, it's important for us to understand, when he says here, forget, the sense there, scripturally speaking, is not merely an intellectual act. He's not simply saying, put this out of your mind. In the scriptures, when forgetting is cited, there is so much more that lies behind it. To give you an example, you remember the words from Isaiah 49. There the Lord says, can a woman forget her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb. Take Jeremiah thirty fourteen When he speaks to Israel, he says, All thy lovers have forgotten thee, they seek thee not. In those texts, what you find here is there's a connection between forgetting and a lack of affection. There's a connection between putting something out of mind and barring one's heart against it. And beloved, that's part of the call that we have in our text. Here, the bride is called not just to put out of mind, but from the heart to make a division between her and her people. 
But the psalmist doesn't leave it simply at that. He gives her an incentive to this work. He says, so shall thy king greatly desire thy beauty. Now, note note the causality that's in here. Note the cause and effect relationship. You have here, so shall the king. That is, in doing this, in forgetting, in, in divorcing yourself from your people, so then the king will delight in your beauty. And please understand this, beloved. That tells us what kind of beauty the text has in view. This is a beauty that is influenced and, and really is arising from this act of forgetting. She is beautified as she forgets her father's house and her people. That's the kind of beauty that the queen is described here. And also remember, beloved, this is given to her as an incentive. The incentive is, because the king would desire this, surely you would, call, you would hear the call. Surely you would comply. And then he closes with a reason. The reason for all of this is because he is thy Lord and worship thou him. In place of your father, adore this king. And note, beloved, this king is cited here as an object worthy of worship. The king, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, beloved, there is some complexity in the text. I want you to notice at the beginning, she's called a daughter. And this is, of course, the psalmist speaking. But the question is, whose daughter is she? Well, in the text, we're told that she is to forget a father. And yet, as you read down to verse 13, she's called a king's daughter, but this is not something that is a shame to her. This is something that's part of her glory. In verse 16, she's then cited as being in some sense superior to a father. How do we deal with this complexity? Well, beloved, the answer is very simple. Here, the psalmist has this bride set before us as a daughter possessed of two fathers. One that she must forget. One that she will triumph over. And another that, will, that is her glory. And another that will beautify her. Beloved, don't miss this. Here you have a picture of the church as she is brought into the family of God. But she is brought into the family as one adopted, taken from one father that she might have another. Now, Of course, beloved, when we ask the question, well, what is the father? Who is the father she is to forget? The answer, of course, is really indicated in the text itself. This is opposite to the father who is her glory. Well, who is this? Well, beloved, remember that to forget this father is a beautiful thing. It's a commendable thing. It's something commanded of one who would adore Christ. And if we remember that, then, friend, we know who the father is, whom she is to renounce. Of course, that, that idea is personified in the devil. Again, Matthew 13. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Speaking there of hypocrites in the church. 
The text that we read from 1 John, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Again in verse 8, he that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The devil in the scriptures is described as having his own children, as being a father to unbelievers, to hypocrites. She is to renounce this father. But, but even if we take this in its broadest senses, I believe we ought to, to forget her people and her father is to forget the devil, of course, to divide herself from the works of the devil, which means then to separate herself from the world and from all sin. This is the call of the text. Her call is to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to give herself wholly to Christ. And beloved, our theme then this evening is taken very directly from the words of the text itself. The king in this text being Christ, we're told that here Christ delights in his people as they renounce the world. Christ delights in his people as they renounce the world. And I want us to see that, first of all, in the approach that the church is commanded to take. Take her approach. The command in verse 10 is very basic. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. It's obviously an admonition. This is obviously clear command. But I want you to notice this, beloved These three phrases indicate that whatever is commanded is difficult. Whatever is commanded will require the greatest and most careful attention from the bride. He says this in three different ways, not to fill space. He says this because the subject matter demands it. The calling demands this kind of carefulness. And as you look in how these phrases appear throughout the scriptures, you'll notice that whenever the difficulty is there, these kinds of statements are heaped one upon the other. To give you an example, incline your ears to the words of my mouth, I will utter dark sayings of old, the psalmist says, to those who are worshiping. Why should they incline their ears? Because he's going to say dark things, things that are murky, things that require the greatest care. Or take even Isaiah 55. There, when God is dealing with those in the church who will not take free grace, he says this, he says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And he follows that with these two commands. Hearken diligently, incline thine ear, hear me and consider carefully, even though your affections are contrary to it. You see, in the scriptures, these phrases hold out to us that the work that she is being summoned to is arduous. And you could conceive it as being even contrary to her own heart. These are things that demand from her the greatest attention. This is an arduous calling. And beloved, this text holds out very pointedly then that the call to forsake sin requires great diligence and strength. Beloved, think here how this allegory sets that before us. This gives us a picture 
the allegory sets it before us as a daughter who is called to forget her people and her father. To forget the land of her nativity, to forget those who have nurtured her. To forget all of that, all of that which would be familiar to her. To sever her heart from it all. Beloved, that is no easy task. And yet the Spirit of God, as He has inspired this psalm, says this is a picture of what the Christian does with regard to the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is your calling. As hard and as arduous as it would be to be literally the woman of this text, to to, to be one who is called to forget her own people, the Spirit of God has inspired it so that 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 is an adequate picture of what belongs to the Christian's calling. This calling requires great diligence. It's a calling that requires great, great strength. And beloved, why does it require diligence? It requires this kind of carefulness because even your own heart is not your friend. The heart is deceitful above all things. And beloved, remember how deceitful that is. Christ gives us a picture of of how deceitful the heart can be. The heart will make it so that people will kill the people of God, and as Christ says, they will think that they do God's service. That's how deceitful the heart is. The heart will literally lead men to kill God's people and do it as though they were doing it for God's sake. Take what you have in Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? The Christian encounters people who, as the apostle describes here, as though they had some magical powers. Their force is, is so mysterious and, and so deep and so murky. And he says here, it's as though you've been bewitched. Their deception is so deep. And so compelling. And beloved, we can go a step further. Why this diligence and carefulness is required. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We don't, we we reformed folk don't meditate much on that verse. Do you realize what he's saying there? Hold all of these things together. This calling to be holy. This calling to be all of Christ's, what are you against? You're against your own heart. You're against those who are crafty deceivers. And you're against an adversary who does not sleep and who stalks you. And would devour you if he could. That's how the scriptures describe the Christian life. That's how the Christian is described. As one who would forget That is, divide herself from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And is it any wonder then that in the Pilgrim's Progress, when John Bunyan is seeking to give illustrations of what the Christian life is like, he shows us bodies strewn on either side of the path. He shows us a Christian who's engaged in battle with Apollyon. In Bunyan's estimation, this is a calling that is arduous. Beloved, this is something that we have forgotten. This kind of need for carefulness and for diligence in killing sin and living in new obedience, we have forgotten. We have forgotten the need to be so careful. 
I mean, have we, have we really thought much about the kind of strength the Christian life requires? I mean, the apostle gives us a picture, doesn't he? He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And so we say, well, that's, that's good. We can leave our swords and our shields at home, our howitzers and our B-52 bombers. They don't need to come out. We're going to do something that's a bit easier. But know what the apostle says. He says, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, and if that wasn't enough, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, wherein your obedience is fulfilled. You see what the apostle did there? By saying that our weapons are not carnal, He's actually, made, he's actually made the case that the Christian life is more arduous than the life of the soldier on the battlefield. I mean, think about what he's just said. Every thought brought un, into obedience to Christ. Every thought. Love, it's a lot easier to wield a sword, isn't it? It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to fight on a battlefield than it is to take a heart that is deceitful. And really bring it under Christ's scepter. But note how the apostle continues. Those who are in Christ, he says here, those who attain heaven, the violent take, that is the kingdom of heaven by force. Matthew eleven twelve. He says, those who are saved are those who are arduous, possessed as it were of a holy violence, a zeal against sin, and a zeal to live for God. These are the only ones that attain to it. Only the violent take it. And beloved, if you think about how the apostle himself explains what this holy violence looks like, the picture really couldn't be more graphic. He says here, I keep my under my body. In the original, the sense is, I beat my body. And bring it under subjection. Lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I should be a castaway. This is a man who, has, who is fulfilling what our text requires. This kind of carefulness and this kind of zeal that is required for one to really forget. To forget the world, the flesh, and the devil as they must. And, and beloved, don't miss this. Don't miss what he says at the very end. Lest, says he, lest when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. The apostle says, this is a struggle that I must maintain because it has the highest and most gravest consequences. Well, but I hope your doctrine of perseverance of the saints allows for this kind of speaking. And the question, of course, if, if this is the Christian life, if it requires this diligence, well, where does it come from? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, says the apostle. To Timothy, he says, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's the source. But beloved, if you hold all that I've said to you up to this point together, you'll notice that those statements are not there simply to alleviate concerns. Those statements are telling us the only way that one continues and perseveres in the Christian life. It is only, only by omnipotent grace.
It is only by the Lord's strength that one lives. Beloved, do you think about the Christian life this way? That it requires this carefulness and this diligence, and it requires nothing less than omnipotent aid to keep you in it. Beloved, if we knew all that faced us, if we knew all of the trials and all of the difficulties that were around us, I think the weakness of our faith would lead us only to despair. The Lord has, in his mercy, kept us from from seeing all that stands against the godly. How men and devils are conspired against your growth and Christ-likeness. But beloved, that's the calling. This is a calling that demands carefulness, demands the greatest attention. But that brings us, secondly, to the nature of this calling. That is, the abandonment that the psalmist calls the bride to. He says, forget also thine own people and thy father's house. She is to diligently engage in this work. Well, what is this work? Note that these two statements really are are synonymous, but they're statements as they stand together that speak here of a total abandonment. Holding them together, it's a wholesale rejection of what she had before. And beloved, this is a picture that the Christian is to strive for a total break with sin. No, the Christian will never know Christian perfection this side of eternity. But she's here called to endeavor toward it. She's here called to exercise all the grace that God has given her that she might not allow one vestige, one part of her old life to have dominion over her. She is to be made entirely new. Christian, the believer here is one who is described, who is indeed striving to break itself, himself from all sin. And beloved, you see that this is, this is necessary to the believer's life. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62 If we are like Lot's wife, still hankering after Sodom, Christ says very pointedly, you are not fit. And Christian, I'm not going to speak to you at all about the need for perfection in this life because it will never be attained. And I'm not going to ask you this evening either, even about the degree to which you're at war with all known sin. Because even in the soundest believer, that degree of hatred is going to fluctuate. It'll ebb and flow. But this text at least brings before us the question, am I one who is... Am I really one who is striving against all sin, or am I, or am I allowing myself that one sinful indulgence that I have no intention of removing? Beloved, if that's the case, you're not heeding this call. Sin still has dominion. But thirdly and finally, as we leave the abandonment that she's required, we're, to, we're given the incentive for all. And that is the approbation of the king. So
so, says the writer, shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, worship thou him. Beloved, I don't have even ten minutes to cover what's in this text. I am almost certain that for 10,000 years and longer, you and I will be meditating on the depth that's in this text. We're here told that Christ really delights in the strivings of his people toward holiness. Before he was crucified, he said this to his disciples. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in that text, he tells us about two joyful people. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. There's Christ's joy. And that your joy may be full. That's the believer's joy. Note what Christ is saying here. Christian, he is saying to his disciples, this heart that you've known of mine in which I delight in your obedience, this heart that you have known on earth in which I really delight as you give yourself to me, I'm taking that heart with me into heaven. And I will be delighted there as I see you striving after holiness. As I see you fighting here to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. Christ, our incarnate Savior, has said in his own words, his human heart will be ravished as he sees his people comply with what you have in this text. And beloved, this is cited as an incentive for the bride as something she should desire. That the heart of Christ will be ravished. Those are not my words. These are the words of the gospel. That he would be ravished as his people, as weak as they are, as spotted as they are. Really and sincerely strive after holiness. Christ not only has toward them a love of beneficence in which he loves them freely, This text says he even delights in their striving. Beloved, that's the thing that will make you and I holy. I want you to know that's the thing that will drive a man to greater godliness. It won't be because he longs to be a better husband to his wife or or a better father to his children only. The thing this text holds out to us is that the great incentive for holiness is that Christ, that our Christ actually delights in his people as they strive to be in, to grow in conformity to him. And that's really what you have in Song of Solomon 4. There, when Christ is speaking to the bride, he says this, he says, Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. Oh, beloved.
if this text really gripped us as it should, I don't see how we could be the same people. I don't see how we can be unchanged. Because, beloved, here is the thing. The Christ who has redeemed you at the cost of his own blood. The eternally happy, the eternally sufficient divine son is described here, and these are his words. His heart is ravished when his people strive for holiness. Christian, that will make you pray. If you have any love for Christ, that will make you pray. If you have love for Christ, beloved, that will make you, that will make you pursue more and more a fight against sin and a living under righteousness. Because this is what's the, this is what the text says. You renounce the world. And as in Christ's own words are in John 15, his joy remains in his own as they do so. Beloved, this will make me a better pastor, a better husband, a better father, but nothing else can. To know that my living Redeemer though I I fail so often in so many ways, delights to see striving for holiness. That will change a prayer. So Christian, are you willing? Are you willing to do this kind of work that the text calls you to this evening? Are you willing to forget the world, the flesh, and the devil and to strive for holiness, knowing that this is the incentive that a living Christ in heaven delights in your doing so. Beloved, that helps us understand, doesn't it? That whenever the apostles urge the people of God to holiness, when they describe their own, their own obedience, they say, the love of Christ constraineth us. It's nothing less than the embodiment of everything that's in this text. Christian, would you strive for the sake of a living Christ this evening to die more to self and to sin in the world? Would you strive for greater holiness privately in your homes, in your places of education and employment? Because you know There's a living Christ who delights in you doing so. Beloved, that's the call from the text. And oh, may we comply. And may we comply for his sake. Amen.